Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Do you still suffer from an old high school basketball injury? Or maybe you're concerned about your son or daughter getting hurt on the field and facing costly medical bills. As fall sports seasons get going, school athletic trainers are reading up on the latest info on keeping young athletes healthy. And the consequences are potentially serious, including season-ending concussions and lifelong joint damage. We'll hear from Native trainers today about how they approach high school sports. That's right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Hundreds of supporters of Native activist Leonard Peltier rallied outside the White House on Tuesday, calling on President Joe Biden to grant him clemency. He's been in prison for nearly 50 years. Melinda Tuhus reports. The day marked Peltier's 79th birthday. He's said to be in poor health and has been imprisoned for the deaths of two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota in 1975. Indigenous leaders, allies, and his attorney are calling for Peltier's freedom, saying there's no evidence tying him to the crime, and say exculpatory evidence was withheld at trial. Fawn Sharp was among the speakers at the rally. She's president of the National Congress of American Indians. on the face of this planet that has the sole decision. It is a choice. He has to release Leonard, a relative. We call on the president of the United States to release our elder. Release the event included the lifting up of an enormous banner with their demand. The rally was organized by NDN Collective and Amnesty International USA. Sharp, Nick Tilson, president and CEO of NDN Collective, and Paul O'Brien, executive director of Amnesty International USA, were arrested outside the White House. According to NDN Collective, the leaders were among 35 people arrested by U.S. Park Police after the U.S. Secret Service cleared people from the rally on Pennsylvania Avenue. Peltier, Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, is incarcerated in a maximum security prison in Florida. Melinda Tuhus, National Native News, Washington, D.C. Outside the coastal community of Florence, Oregon, a restoration project is underway to convert nearly 200 acres of old dairy farmland into habitat to benefit wildlife, especially salmon. As KLCC's Brian Bull reports, a tribe is among partners. On a flat, muddy area of reddish clay-like soil, an excavator digs away at what will eventually become a primary channel in what used to be a marsh. Jesse Beers examines the site for anything ranging from pottery shards to human remains. He's the cultural stewardship manager for the Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Sioslaw Indians. They're partnering with the Sioslaw Watershed Council and the Mackenzie River Trust on this restoration. Beers says it's an essential collaboration. During the treaty process, when our treaty wasn't ratified, 
our lands were never legally ceded. That's part of the reason we see ourselves as such big stewards of our lands and waters, because we don't really have the population or the capacity anymore to manage those lands as we used to. It's very important for us to work with our partners. The Sayusla Estuary Restoration Project is slated to take two years at a cost of $10 million. That's on top of the purchase of the dairy farm, which was $750,000 funded by a grant from the Oregon Watershed Enhancement Board. Margaret Treadwell is the Mackenzie River Trust Central Coast Conservation Program Manager. She says the partnership will make a noticeable difference. You will see the river returned, particularly at the high tides, up into this area that we're looking at right now. So the river will be coming back in here, bringing salt water, creating just a nice passage for uh, fish to come up through here and spend their juvenile time. When finished, planners say six miles of habitat will provide feeding and rearing grounds for salmon, steelhead, and lamprey, as well as shorebirds. There will also be a tribal naming ceremony for the area, and a canoe landing is also part of the design. I'm Brian Bull, outside Florence, Oregon. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by StrongHearts Native Helpline, providing no-charge confidential support and resources to Native Americans affected by domestic and sexual violence 24-7 at 1-844-7-NATIVE or strongheartshelpline.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Sports-related injuries among high school athletes are decreasing, but the severity of those injuries is getting worse. That's according to research this year by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. With football season and other high school sports underway, Native athletic trainers must adjust to an evolving understanding of sports injuries and their treatments. Today on our show, we'll talk with Native athletic trainers about their work and how they strive to keep young athletes safe and healthy. Is there a high school athlete in your house? Do you have any old injuries from playing sports that still cause pain or discomfort? Or do you think injuries are a result of kids being pushed too hard to compete in sports these days? Join this conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. And a disclaimer, we cannot give specific medical advice on the show today, so please consult a doctor for any guidance about injuries or your health. John Sunchild is speaking with us from a Rocky Boy Reservation in northern Montana. He's an athletic trainer, and he is Chippewa Cree. Hi, John. Welcome back to NAC. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me again. It's my second time on the show, but I'm happy to be back and uh, provide some uh, advice and insight into everything sports medicine related and athletic training related. You bet, John. Looking forward to talking with you more. 
In Venice, California, we have Jasmine Velasquez on the line. She is also an athletic trainer, and she is from the Muscogee Creek Nation. Jasmine, great to have you on NAC2. Thank you for allowing me to be on the show, and I am really excited to, to give some input on this topic. I am too. And joining us from Missoula, Montana, is Drew Babcock. He is the American Indian and Alaska Native Outreach Coordinator for the Family Medicine Residency of Western Montana, and he has also been an athletic trainer for many years. He is Blackfeet. Drew, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Looking forward to this conversation, and I'm honored to be on your show. Well, let's get this conversation started. And John, let's go ahead and start with you and these key findings in the report we mentioned during the introduction that high school sports injuries are becoming more serious in nature. That's probably not big news to anyone familiar with high school sports. Are are you seeing the same trends with student athletes you work with? Um, In regards to the article, um, you know, I agree with certain aspects of it, but the biggest thing that I can speak to as far as um, being a rural um, athletic trainer on a reservation. Um, I think a lot of the times in a rural area, especially, you know, Montana, the biggest thing that is um, that they're missing there with that report is like the underreported areas of like um, rural medicine. So you got to think they probably have, you know, the bigger, bigger cities being able to find all that data, but, you know, way out in the middle of north central Montana, you know, there's not very much reporting being done, you know, different different areas like that. So it's good to kind of have um, athletic training and sports medicine kind of venture out onto, you know, rural reservations, um, rural areas, so that way you can kind of get an accurate representation of everything. Um, like I said, I do agree with some of the points <clears throat> stated in the article, but there's this much, much more to be um, found as far as um, injury specifics, injury statistics. Um, I'm starting to kind of gather more and more through the program that I started um, here at the Rocky Boy Health Center. Um, you know, I cover two secondary schools on the reservation, Box Elder High School and Rocky Boy High School. So it's been, I've been doing this now for the first time um it's my third going on my third year, so you know it's been interesting to kind of see more and more statistics that I've seen <clears throat> gathered here, and um, looking okay. forward to kind of looking forward to kind of seeing how that moves forward. And John, what inspired you to initiate this program where you're working with these two high schools there uh, in and around Rocky Boy? Is it partly because? Um, some of these rural areas just don't have the same access to, to medical training and personnel like you described earlier? That being, you know, a big part of it, you know, as a as a kid that grew up on this reservation, you know, it's a, it's a strong sense of culture. It's a cultural community. So being able to kind of come back and connect with the cultural side of things <clears throat> as well as bring you know, something that's never been brought here before, you know, sports medicine, athletic training. It was always a goal of mine. Um, Straight out of college, I worked for a hospital right above Missoula there. It was on the reservation. Um, It was the Flathead Reservation. Um, 
what brought what brought me back, you know, I always wanted to come back in some sort of facet. Um, unfortunate circumstances kind of brought me back. You know, my father, who was a um, cultural leader and an educator in the Rocky Boy school system, you know, he had <clears throat> gotten sick with cancer, and I um, I moved back home to be with him. You know, the last six months, seven months of his life. Um, but it, it brought me back home was the, you know, the big takeaway from that. And I was able to, with the support of the um, leaders here in the community, you know, we were able to get this position funded for the, um, for the youth. And, you know, that's what kind of matters to me is bringing, bringing something back from my education to the, yeah. uh, to the seats, you know, that I sat in as a kid, you know, through the, through schooling. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. Pretty, it's, um, it's pretty rewarding process for sure. It sounds like it, John, and great that you're able to go back uh, to your home community and serve as you're doing. And well, tell us more about what you're seeing there as an athletic trainer at these two high schools. What kinds of injuries are you seeing? And do you think this unique role that you have, are you better suited to, to treat these injuries and prevent them as well? I think based on the um, the biggest thing that I always kind of hang my hat on is the um, as a um, medical provider and an athletic trainer is being able to build trust. You know, not a lot, a lot of times, you know, especially on reservations, the medical providers have that you know that trust and that sense with the um, community. So I was able to connect with the community because I'm from here, obviously. You know, I'm Chippewa Cree, so it was kind of an easier transition than, say, you know, a medical provider from, you know, other ethnicity or, you know, another reservation, being able to kind of connect with the certain intricacies, you know, that are here on the reservation. <clears throat> so I think, you know, that's that's the big, biggest thing that I can kind of speak to is just building that trust um, as a medical provider. You know, you can kind of get get to the places where you need to go um, as far as your evaluations and treatment. Because um, in my mind, you know, the um, in regards to sports medicine, you know, it's in, in um, athletics, it's being able to kind of, it's like a five-step process with, you know, six or seven different avenues you can go down to find out what's kind of going wrong, <clears throat> going on with someone. So, you know, an injury is not always just, you know, cut and, cut and paste, you know, every injury is going to have specifics to, you know, the person, the, the way their body type is, the way they're built. Um, so it's okay. being able to kind of get through those processes and connect with the person is uh, what helps me the most. And John, what are some of the most common injuries you come across with high school athletes? Um, and around on the fall time, you know, it's uh, football. Football is, you know, the biggest, you know, contact sports. You know, obviously you're going to see concussions, um, shoulder injuries, especially with football, ankle injuries, and then, you know, a lot of stuff with um, related to overuse. So, say, like my volleyball players, you know, a lot of them have, you know, shoulder, not necessarily injuries, but, you know, they start to get tight or different things like that. You know, it's a... It's we're very sport dependent, so you know you got to be able to kind of identify, you know, what movement aspects are in each sport. You know, like you said, or like I said, 
volleyball is going to be a lot of like shoulder stuff. Football is going to be completely 100% contact, so anything goes. Um, do you no, see more injuries? Like a, I'm sorry, John. Do you see more injuries among boys' sports th than girls' sports, or is it about the same? Um, as of right now, it's kind of been. Um, I think the the women are a lot more apt to seek help at times, whereas you know sometimes it's still in a rural area. It's still kind of like, well, you got to kind of man up to a certain extent, you know, with some of the boys' sports, but. Gaining that trust, you know, I've, I've been able to kind of see, you know, pretty much a spread evenly distribution with the sports. You know, they they see somebody that's from their reservation, you know, they, and they're, they're a lot more apt to talking to me rather than, you know, pushing through something or hiding something. Right, right. Well, that really resonates with me, like uh male athletes maybe not reporting injuries because i remember when i was in high school i did a real number on one of my rotator cuffs i was on the wrestling team and i just never said anything and looking back i totally should have probably had surgery on it, it was bad i still gives me a little trouble i just i just didn't bother to, to mess with it because i knew it'd be i didn't want to like sit out and all that kind of stuff so john what kind of tips do you have to young athletes and also their families you know to make sure that, that these kids stay healthy out there whether they're on the court or on the field or anywhere else they're competing because it sure is alarming. Um, you know, when we hear about these injuries and we hear about some of these setbacks, especially with young kids who are so young and their bodies are growing, their bodies are developing and we are going to have to take a short break here, John. So just go ahead. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to have you answer that question. Cause again, we do want to give, uh, some information out to our listeners who uh, might have athletes at home or, or might be athletes themselves, or maybe they are former athletes that still have an old nagging injury from back in the day when they were an athlete. And our phone lines are open as well. So anyone with a question or a comment or would just like to maybe share a little bit of history of when they might have gotten hurt as an athlete and, and how they went through therapy and treatment, let us know. 1-800-996-2848. We will be right back after this break. Alaska Native groups are both praising and slamming the latest turnaround on oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. We'll hear about that and another initiative related to climate change and Native environmental stewardship and the political forces behind them. That's on the next Native America Calling. I'm Michael, and I used to smoke. I never used to think about breathing. Then my left lung collapsed, and I was diagnosed with COPD. Now I think about breathing all the time. I'm on an oxygen machine so I can breathe. I take medicine so I can breathe. My tip is, enjoy the breaths you don't have to think about. You don't know how long you'll have them. Smoking can cause COPD. You can quit. For free help, visit cdc.gov slash quit now. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about sports injuries with Native teen athletes. If you have a comment or question, you can join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And on the line now, we have John Sunchild, who is an athletic trainer uh, at high schools on the Rocky Boy Reservation in Montana. And John, uh, what tips 
can you offer for athletes and their families to make sure boys and girls stay healthy uh, during the season, after the season, practice, competition? There's just so much going on with high school athletes these days. Um, some of the biggest things that I could recommend, you know, just off the top of my head is, you know, a proper sleep schedule and a proper hydration and eating schedule. You know, I get kids that, um, you know, come in after practice, you know, saying, oh, well, you know, this hurts, this hurts, and this hurts. And I ask them, well, what did you eat today? Well, I skipped, I skipped breakfast and lunch. You know, by the time that they're finished with, the, you know, seven eight-hour school day and move right into practice, you know, for two, you know, an hour or two, you know, that's kind of a lot of uh, caloric expenditure. So being able to kind of keep up with their um, needs on the, uh, you know, their calories going in versus out, you know, that's a big thing. Um, <clears throat> if you're able to have access to an athletic trainer, I think that would probably be your best bet to kind of stay healthy um, in the long run. So a lot of the a lot of times, you know, with injury prevention, you know, with the way I look at it, you can um, you can take something, take care of something a lot, a lot easier when you catch it, you know, early on. So being able to report that, you know, how you're feeling, you know, you, whichever whatever kind of medical services you have available to you, you know, catch something early on. That way, it doesn't become a problem, a bigger problem later on, and then. Um, and speaking to, you know, athletic training, clinical skills, you know, we're able to kind of um, identify your needs based on your personal needs rather than, you know, just like a generalized plan. Um, so let's say, you know, I would treat somebody else, I would treat a volleyball injury different than I would treat like a football injury and then even even, even a greater in, um, inspection into that, you know, I would treat somebody that's, you know, six foot, you know, 140 pounds compared to somebody that's five foot five, 120 pounds. You know, each, depending on your body type and your strengths and areas of improvement, you know, that's going to be, those are going to be things that you can find out through, you know, your clinical evaluation skills and, you know, what exactly are areas of improvement and their strengths, you know, that they can kind of move forward with. Okay, good information here. John, thank you for kicking off our, our conversation. Uh, phone lines are open right now, folks. 1-800-996-2848. If you've got a question with regard to sports injuries and uh, native athletic trainers, give us a call. We'll get your comments on the air. And with that, let's go ahead and bring Jasmine into our conversation. She is in California. And Jasmine, you were recently at the Native American Basketball Invitation there in Phoenix, and and how did the athletes there fare health wise? Did you have many injuries? Um, we did. We had a fair amount of injuries. Uh, that that Invitational is huge. Uh, it is open to kind of everybody. I think we had almost like sixteen hundred athletes participate um, from across the nation, from First Nations Canada. We had a group of Maori from New Zealand. Um, it is a, a big endeavor, endeavor. Um, and yeah, we, we did have a fair amount of injuries for sure. Um, I think working in pediatrics in particular, uh, we are going to see a wide variety of injuries and, you know, sports specifically, we're going to have, you know, some common themes, uh, with those athletes, uh, myself and other athletic trainers under native ATs, we went and provided 
the full medical coverage for that event. Okay. And what kind of injuries did you see primarily, Jasmine? Um, any Anything from our ankle to our knee injuries. We had a, a good deal of, of head injuries for sure, uh, shoulder injuries, but more so often when we show up to provide, you know, our treatment of care to our Indigenous athletes. Oftentimes, the majority of our kids don't have access to healthcare. They don't have access to an athletic trainer. So when we get them one time during the summer for a week, um, they're coming in with, with with old injuries. They're coming in with injuries that have been very persistent, um, pretty chronic. And so oftentimes, we're kind of triaging the situation. And, you know, for me personally, for those overuse injuries, it's really heartbreaking that our kids don't have the same access as, as other athletes, other pediatric athletes. And it's really mm -hmm. sad because they have to essentially like learn how to play injured or, you know, have chronic injuries that could have been preventable. Yeah. Yeah. It's really alarming to hear that. And Jasmine, you know, there's a lot of criticism these days and people say, oh, these young kids, they're, they're being pushed too hard into sports and they're practicing longer and more frequently. And they're told to specialize in a specific sport at a young age and year round competition. Uh, what's your thought on that? Do you think that's contributing to some of these more severe injuries or is it just, is, are those concerns overblown? In my personal and professional opinion, I'm not a big fan of sports specialization. I don't, I don't really think you're going to meet too many healthcare providers who work with pediatrics who are going to be like, yes, let's sports specialize, um, mainly because it, it does take a toll on the body. Um, they've done countless studies and they've looked at burnout in rates of kids. They looked at kids who started participating in sports specializing in like elementary school age. And then did they continue their career? Did they go, you know, off to college? Did they go? to that next level of sports and oftentimes no by the time they get to middle school and high school they're burnt out already um they're kind of over it and for me on the medical aspect yeah we're going to start to see a lot more overuse injuries um the more wear and tear you put on a, onto a specific body part yeah essentially it's going to going to fight back and it's going to you know it's going to tell you no your body is is not really designed you know to be 100% all of the time, it will tell you no. And I think that's, that's a really hard factor that comes into play when it comes to pediatrics. And, you know, it's hard. It's a hard, it's a hard concept to, to wrap, you know, your head around sometimes. Right, right. And Jasmine, both you and John have stressed this need for, for more athletic trainers and sports medicine resources in Native communities. And However, you know, we do have doctors, we do have clinics, and, and what is it about a, a, an athletic trainer or a sports medicine specialist? What do they know that just a regular general practitioner, an MD, or a nurse at a clinic, what is it that they know that those folks don't, and why are the athletic specialists so critical in these healthcare situations? Well, I think that's a subjective question. I think anybody who's in the healthcare field is going to be able to, to provide a specific level of care. Um, they're going to be able to do their job very well. I think when it comes to athletic trainers in particular, we specialize in athletes. It's in our title. It's in the name. Um, we specialize in athletes. Me in particular, my primary focus has always been pediatric athletes. So understanding the developmental phase of where that athlete is, if I'm working with a five-year-old or a 17-year-old, where are they at in their growth cycle? So this is going to contribute to 
potential injuries are, you know, how am I going to treat them? How am I going to get them rehab? On top of that, our job is different. When a high school or a sport team is given like a full-time athletic trainer, and I need to stress the full-time aspect here. Um, oftentimes, a lot of athletic trainers are part-time. Oftentimes at the high school level, athletic trainers only show up for Friday night football um, and they're not necessarily there Monday through Friday, but for game day, they're there for game day Friday night, but during the rest of the week, what's going on? Um, and I think one of the benefits of having a full-time athletic trainer is you get to know these kids and you get to understand who they are, some of their like body mechanics, their mannerisms, you know, certain aspects about them. Aside from our specialized like education, where we are hyper-focused on orthopedic, you know, injuries. Like, hey, this is what you're going to do if this is a knee injury. This is what a, a torn ACL feels like compared to a non-torn ACL. This is what a mild grade one ACL tear feels like compared to a completely torn one. These are aspects of our education that are very sport-specific. On top of that, athletes have a very different mentality. And so we have to learn and understand how to work with that. Jasmine, what you're describing then is a really high level of expertise and just it sounds like just spending a lot of time with athletes and just treating some of these different injuries. Uh, how long does it take to become a, a skilled athletic trainer? What's the schooling like? And then what's just the actual, you know, working out there with athletes in schools, with teams, everything that's involved with that? So at the current moment, um, most of the programs have transitioned to a master's level, like a graduate level program. Um, so that you have to get your undergraduate degree and, you know, you can go get kinesiology or exercise science or any of those realms. Um, and then you can apply for a master's, uh, entry-level master's program in athletic training. Um, my education, I was one of the last cohorts who got a bachelor's degree in athletic training. Um, aside from just specializing in our, our educational courses, um, we have to commit, you know, over thousands of hours uh, working with teams and learning and practicing um, and then we sit for a board exam you sit for your board of certifications exam um, and you have to pass that and otherwise you know you can't just put anybody out on the field nobody can just walk out there and say hey I'm an athletic trainer I can tape ankles no I am a certified athletic trainer um, I am a licensed healthcare provider I can do x y and z um, and that's essentially what that's a little a mini roadmap to what our educational process looks like. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's extensive for sure. And then what about the liability, Jasmine? Because obviously working on these bodies, something could go wrong. I mean, you must have some kind of uh, insurance or something to cover you in the event that, uh, you know, somebody files a suit. Hey, I, Jasmine messed up my elbow worse than it already was or something like that. Well, first off, I would never do that. But <laughs> in this hypothetical situation, um, yeah, we essentially, many of us will have our own malpractice insurance that we cover. Um, California is a, is a rarity, though, because um, we're, we're one of the few states that doesn't require licensure for athletic trainers, whereas our neighboring states do, which I think is a benefit to our profession. Um, so on top of having that license, they have to, whatever institution our college, our high school, our hospital that they're working for typically will also provide their own legal liability and malpractice insurance for that athletic trainer. Okay. All right. Good to be covered out there when you're working on, on athletes with these kind of issues. And 
Uh, phone lines are, are open, folks. 1-800-996-2848. We really would like to get some calls going. Anybody with any experience in dealing with high school sports-related injuries, if you're an athlete yourself or a parent, or maybe you're a trainer or you're a coach and you've got something to add to this conversation, we'd sure love to hear it. 1-800-996-2848. And uh, one topic that's really coming across loud and clear in this conversation today is that there is a need for more Native American folks to work in sports medicine. And let's talk about that a little bit more with our third guest, Drew Babcock, who is the outreach coordinator for the Family Medicine Residency of Western Montana. And uh, Drew, thanks again for joining us today. And what is the value of having more Native representation in sports medicine? How can that improve some of these issues we're seeing with young athletes getting hurt? You know, um, you know that's a fantastic question. And um, one, of the, one of the important things is that you know, athletic trainers that are native or from these communities, um, especially, you know, in, in rural settings too, you know, there's, there's, um, they know their community and the community knows them. The trust level goes way up and, um, you know, that, that knowledge is, is valued, not only the orthopedic and the, you know, the hands-on skills, um, but also the knowledge of um, the families and also the traditional values. Mm-hmm. So um, to that, and and I, I think one of the things that um, sometimes we tend to forget is, you know, there are traditional values that. Um, you know, native athletic trainers can incorporate back to their communities and surrounding, you know, not only just orthopedic sports care, but also um, health for life. Right, right, good point. And and with youth, you know, um, if they don't have access to mentors, um, especially, you know, mentors that that are in medical fields or healthcare settings, like athletic training, um, you know, there's a, there's a saying of, um, if you don't see yourself in the profession, then you're probably not going to that profession, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It sounds like people definitely need to have a calling to do this type of work and, and a real passion for, for not just sports, but also, of course, the health and welfare of young athletes. And with that, Drew, we're going to go ahead and take a caller. We've got Jessica, who is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, listening on station KUNM. Hi, Jessica. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I just wanted to comment and appreciate this topic. I think it really is important for our parents and our young athletes to understand what it takes to be successful as an athlete. I think one of the missing parts that we forget is the recovery stage, um, whether it's after practice or a hard competition. You know, it, it includes the right dietary needs, including the right amount of protein and carbohydrates, um, for the body to recover, but also, um, and that, and so that comes in with just the, um, just the regular regulatory um, habits of of eating and what we choose to eat. Um, a lot of our native families, you know, we go back to tradition and culture, and and that doesn't always have 
the right amount of protein involved for that recovery, but also the amount of sleep, right? Um, sleep is the time in which our bodies recover, and, and athletes need a, a fair amount of sleep for to reduce soreness. And, and the more time we allow for that recovery, the less risk there is for injuries to okay. occur okay. and to continue to be an issue. And Jessica, quick question. For, for a young athlete, a high school boy or girl playing a sport right now, how many hours of sleep should they get per night, roughly? Um, so I would say anywhere from eight to 10. And again, it depends on where their activity is and, um, you know, what, what their daily habits are. Eight to 10 hours minimum then. And, uh, maybe might depend on how much they're, uh, what kind of sport they're doing or, you know, whether it's a cardio sport or, or something else. And then, well, it's just a lot on a, a young person's plate when you think about it. Uh, practice, studies, uh, plenty of sleep, uh, eating right, uh, lots to manage and uh, lots to be thinking about for, for our young uh, native high school athletes. So we're going to take another short break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more with Drew and our other guests. And Jessica, uh, who just called in from Albuquerque, New Mexico, thank you for that call. Really on point. Jessica is a physician assistant in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Anyone else? Phone lines are open. 1-800-996-2848. Did you know that there could be a silent killer inside your home? You may know it. Carbon monoxide. It's a poisonous gas that can't be seen or smelled. Yet, it can kill a family in a matter of minutes. You can protect yours by installing carbon monoxide alarms throughout your home. Find more on the dangers of carbon monoxide and additional safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're hearing about youth sports injuries and how to avoid them and treat them when they occur. What do you think? You have a young athlete in your family who you worry might get hurt on the field, court, or the mat? Tell us at 1-800-996-2848. And we've got Drew Babcock on the line. He's up in Missoula, Montana. He's an athletic trainer and also outreach coordinator at the Family Medicine Residency of Western Montana. And, Drew, we've been talking so much uh, about, you know, injuries like uh, concussions and sprains and pulled and torn ligaments. But one issue we need to talk about as well today is, is the mental health of our young athletes. And as I understand it, uh, that's another concern that a lot of uh, folks have. And how do you address that in sports medicine, the mental health side? Because we hear about young kids just getting stressed out with competition and uh, the practices and things like that, depression and other factors that can really weigh on a young person's mind. Yeah. And, you know, I think I'm going to reiterate here um, some of the things that Jasmine and John were saying you know, um, about the amount of hours and, um, it just seems like sports are going year round and you're kind of, you know, you know, pigeonholed into a certain sport. Um, but again, you know, that, that time for a break, um, not only to recoup physically, but also, um, recoup mentally and emotionally and, and for, for some even spiritually, um, that that's um, a huge need that I is really isn't talked about that much. So I'm glad that we're 
you know, paying a, a little bit of, of credence to it here. And, you know, in the last, um, well, um, I would say the last five years when I was practicing at the collegiate level and still am a little bit involved in the collegiate level, the mental health um, issues that our athletes are having rose dramatically and the severity rose dramatically. And as athletic trainers, you know, some of, you know, our training is in orthopedics uh, and um, injury management, but we are also pretty in tune with, you know, the psychological side and the emotional and spiritual side of our athletes. However, you know, we're, we're not the, the psychologists and the mental health professionals. Um, and there just aren't enough mental health professionals and behavioral health professionals out there. And it's really hard for these native communities too to get access to that. So it's, it's a very complicated um, thing. And, and, you know, behavioral health, depression, anxiety, and it, it's just, it's going way underreported. Right, right. It seems like a lot of that stuff could fall through the cracks for sure. And uh, so, Drew, as you mentioned, most of your training is in orthopedics and, and treating these types of injuries. But what can you offer as a tip to to a family who, who has a young athlete who's under just a, a lot of pressure? And, and again, these sports, in many cases, they compete year round. There's just a a lot of pressure on these young kids to go out there. And you mentioned working at the college level. I mean, that's almost like the pros these days. I mean, it's like a full-time job to be a college athlete. And again, the, the mental stress that goes with that. So what can folks do to, to manage that better? Yeah. Uh, you know, another great question. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that we're also finding too, is that, you know, those, the amount of stress, because, you know, everybody's looking maybe to play at the next level. Um, whether, you know, it's high school to college or college to professional, um, you know, and, and, you know, frankly, if, if, you know, you're in a community and maybe you're first generation um, trying to attend college um, within your family and, you know, that the amount of pressure to perform and, and possibly get noticed in the scholarship is, is you know, that's, those are significant and that can also, you know, set somebody up, you know, if they go to college, set them up for, for success later in life. However, um, one of the things, you know, I guess, um, in, in my opinion, that I would advocate for is, you know, our, our communities um, and our Native populations, you know, our youth are, are incredibly smart and talented people and sports, um, you know, is not the only way to get to college. It's not the only way to get to head in life. And there's tons of resources out there. However, on the other hand, we, um, kind of as a nation need to be, um, a little bit more clear on where the resources lie and how to get resources to, um, those students. So again, you know, um, not having, um, and this is, you know, it's easier said than done, of course, but um, maybe not thinking sports are the end all be all for these, for these populations. Right. And, right. You know, 
Yeah, it sounds like what uh, just some balance, right, Drew? Just keep yeah. things in perspective, absolutely. And well, Drew, I want to thank you uh, for joining our show today, as well as Jasmine and John. Just a, a really, really insightful conversation on uh, sports medicine and how it applies to to young Native high school athletes. And with that, folks, we are going to pivot now on our show, and we're going to introduce another topic. And with that. We want to take a few moments and recognize the tragic news today that Jean Peltola, husband of Alaska Congresswoman Mary Peltola, died in what her office says was a plane accident. There aren't many details on that yet. I'm sure there will be more news on that later. Eugene Buzzy Peltola was a notable Alaska Native leader in his own right. He was an Aratmutsu Native Council tribal member. He was the former regional director of the Bureau of Indian Affairs for Alaska He spent 34 years working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska as well. He was vice mayor and council member for the city of Bethel between 2010 and 2012. And Mary Peltola is, of course, the first Alaska Native person elected to Congress. And Buzzy was there by her side during her campaign. And joining us now from Anchorage, Alaska, is Lamont Albertson. He works uh, with an intertribal fish commission, and he worked with Buzzy Peltola in a professional capacity for many years, but he has known him personally since Peltola was just a young child. And Lamont, thanks for coming on to talk with us today. And first, I want to express my condolences for your friend and colleague, and I wish we were talking under better circumstances. Uh, Tell us more. When did you first meet Buzzy Peltola? Well, I met Buzzy Back before he could remember, I'm sure he was about a year old or two years old at the most. In fact, I I picked him up, uh, held him. I was visiting his mom, Pam, and uh, his dad, Gene Faltola Sr. So his uh, dad led the H.C. company at the time over in Antioch, Alaska. Wow. Wow. Go back a lot of years. And Lamont... Since his wife, Mary, got elected, she's just gotten so many headlines, and she's such a leader uh, across all of Indian country and among Alaska Native communities. But Buzzy, of course, was a a very, very well-respected Native leader in his own right, and he held a number of high-level positions. And can you tell us a little bit about how he was able to achieve his success, and tell us a little bit more about his career arc? Well, he was a, <clears throat> a very intelligent young man. <clears throat> it's uh, impossible to exaggerate how smart he was because he was just as smart. But uh, And he was uh, anything that uh, you uh, could think of that he was challenged by. He, he saw it as a challenge. He did not see uh, solving problems as problems per se, but he saw them as challenges. And he went about the business of trying to uh, figure out how to get things done. He was a, a, a leader of men. I don't mean just Native men, but Caucasian men. It didn't matter who you were. You were respected his intelligence. He was uh, uh, one of the leaders up here and trying, in my opinion, to make people understand what the needs of subsistence people were. And uh, uh, he uh, took pains to explain exactly what subsistence needs were and why these people needed to to uh, have their kids learn in school and do the sort of things that family people want to do along the Cusco River. But uh, he was one of the first people, in my opinion, who uh, 
did a good job of explaining what subsistence needs were for us. Mm-hmm. But uh, I saw him with his uncle, uh, Ray Peltola Jr., up the Antioch River, and they had just shot a, a beautiful bull moose, a, a, a fantastic bull moose. But uh, I was wondering why they weren't uh, butchering the moose at, right at that time. So Butsy explained to me that the first thing they did was uh, fixed uh, some tea and were thankful to God for their uh, gift that they had been given with that moose and all the meat it represented. So we drank tea, and as soon as we drank tea, we all got to work on butchering that moose. But mm-hmm. he was uh, just, in, it's impossible for me to exaggerate his, his intelligence and, and who he was. Uh, it's a wonderful story, Lamont. And yeah. uh, Buzzy Peltola, his father, Gene Peltola Sr., he was a trailblazer. And I know he went from becoming uh, president of the Association of Village Council Presidents, and then he headed up uh, one of the regional health corporations. And he was well, well respected for being a, a really keen strategist. Do you think some of that rubbed off on his son, Buzzy? I I think so exactly. I, Gene Senior, he did not hesitate to speak speak to powerful people and tell them of the needs of our of our folks along the Cusquam River. And Gene Junior Gene Junior was the same way, exactly the same way. He worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service and came to a bat for us many many times when we had the subsistence concerns, but. Uh, he was uh, just something else. I, 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 again, I can't exaggerate his intelligence. Um, Lamont, an interesting element uh, to to the Mary and Buzzy Peltola marriage is that they served on the Bethel City Council together, and it was about that time that they became a couple. And I'm curious, do you know how the town reacted uh, when when Mary and Buzzy became a couple and did things change for them in any way after that with regard to their careers? Well, I, I think so. But we uh, both admired uh, Bussy and Mary so much and Mary is such a leader in her own right. But well, once they got together, we had two leaders together so we could address uh, our concerns when the, both of them were right there together. But I think the whole community was pretty supportive of, the, of them. Uh, the people that knew how much they meant to us as leaders, as subsistence leaders out there knew exactly what they were up against. Uh, we understood the ins and outs of that subsistence way of life. But but I think the community was uh, so glad they were both there. In fact, uh, Mary uh, since has been elected to a statewide office uh, as our representative. So we, we looked to both of them as leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Lamont, I, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, again, this is all such uh, tragic news that uh, we learned about this morning. Again, the death of Jean Peltola, husband of Alaska Congresswoman Mary Peltola, who died in uh, what was a plane accident uh, earlier today. So condolences and remembrances have been pouring in for Jean Peltola over social media. Fellow Alaska Congresswoman Lisa Murkowski released a statement expressing her sadness. She said anyone who met Buzzy felt his warmth, generosity, and charm. 
Murkowski says it was easy to see why so many Alaskans called him a friend and how he was so beloved by his family. Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy said Buzzy Peltola's dedication to Alaska ran deep and he will be dearly missed. And Anton McParland, Representative Peltola's chief of staff, said Buzzy Peltola was, in his own words, one of those people that was obnoxiously good at everything. He had a delightful sense of humor that lightened the darkest moments, and he simply adored Mary. Uh, Eugene Buzzy Peltola, uh, before his time with the Bureau of Indian Affairs for Alaska from 2017 to 2022, he spent 34 years working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska, and he was vice mayor and council member for the city of Bethel between 2010 and 2012. He served on several Alaska Native Village Corporation organizations, and he was the first Alaska Native to manage the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, Lamont, please, we're going to have to wrap up in about another minute or so, but anything else you would like to share about your dear friend and colleague, Gene Peltola? Yeah, he had so much respect for his elders and that the the wiser people there in the Cusquim River, and that's exactly why he was so respected himself. It's one story, but I, I just, I'm an elderly person. I'm going to be 80 on my next birthday, and so I had a stroke, as a lot of old people have. And then Gene Peltola Jr. and his wife Mary Peltola sent me subsistence foods so I could have the right foods to eat when I was recovering from my stroke. I'll never forget Gene and Mary for doing that. Sounds like uh, just uh, wonderful, wonderful people, Lamont. And, and again, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And condolences to you and everyone else there who knew and um, had a lot of respect for, for Gene Peltola and, of course, his wife, Mary Peltola. And uh, with that, folks, we're going to go ahead and have to wrap up our show today. And I want to thank all of our guests who joined us uh, to talk about sports medicine, and also the late Gene Peltola. Tomorrow on Native America Calling, we'll get updates on the federal government's recent reversal on oil leases in Alaska, and we'll also hear about a marine sanctuary in California. Hope you'll join us. I'm Sean Spruce. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. I got help from SBA from the very first day. They have taught us so many different things like government contracting, finding funding, and how to get new opportunities to do business. There are people who are there to help you, and that's SBA. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.